Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Um, he was crying. There was mucus coming from his nose and mouth area. Um, and he was kind of just in a downward position. Apparently, it seemed as though he was praying. A wedding is supposed to be a happy occasion. It's an opportunity for two people who love one another to make a public commitment, to combine their two families into one, and to express devotion and faithfulness. But that wasn't the case for Mark Castiglione and Claire McMullen, who were scheduled to be married at the New England Pentecostal Ministries Church at 10 a.m. on October 12, 2019. Just as they finished saying their vows, a man with a gun walked into the sanctuary, took aim, and pulled the trigger. What should have been Mark and Claire's special day had erupted into chaos as an all-out active shooter incident unfolded, all because of a tangled web of family, mental illness, and murder. Luis Garcia was a pillar of the community in Pelham, New Hampshire. There he was an elder and a pastor at the New England Pentecostal Ministries Church. Like any good shepherd, Lewis cared deeply about his flock. He went out of his way to help and show love to people who were struggling, befriending those who society might otherwise have let slip through the cracks. His wife Patricia Garcia later explained, What was his position at the church? He was a minister. Minister. Yes. What does that mean to be a minister at that church? Can you describe that for us? Well, at any of the churches, people would call on you in the middle of the night. He stopped a lot of people from committing suicide, um, baptized people, married people, counsel. He was also generally pretty reachable over the telephone. Even while he was out helping other people, he tended to talk with Patricia at least once during the day. So it was odd when he didn't pick up at 9.31 a.m. on Tuesday, October 1st, 2019. Even odder, the caller, Mark Castiglione, knew that Lewis was at his house. He'd agreed to help out with a painting project. Mark was going to be married soon and he wanted his house to be in the best shape possible for his new bride. So, Lewis had offered to repaint every room. He left home that morning at around 8 and had arrived at Mark's house about a half hour later. If that day was like most other days, he probably encountered Mark's son, Brandon Castiglione, who lived there as well. Since he didn't have a job and rarely went out with friends, Brandon tended to stay in while Lewis worked. But when Mark tried to reach Brandon, he too didn't answer. Soon, more calls began to roll in. Lewis's friend and Brandon's grandmother, Frances Pastana, tried unsuccessfully to reach the minister. Then she reached out to his wife, Patricia, who dialed Lewis's number four or five times in a row, with each call going to voicemail. Brandon's sister, Danielle Patalano, was also texting him, 
and only heard silence in response. When her father Mark told her he also couldn't reach Brandon, she sent one more desperate message. Is that the message that you wrote to Brandon? Yes. Okay. Could you please read it for us? I had a horrible dream last night. I hope you're doing okay. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm really concerned about you. I love you so much, Brandon. It was now 12.51 p.m., almost three and a half hours after that first call went unanswered. Numerous concerned neighbors and friends dropped by Brandon Castiglione's house, hoping to reach the unresponsive men. They rang the bell and even pounded on the door, but still no one answered. The minutes were ticking by. It had now been roughly five hours since anyone had heard from Brandon or Luis Garcia. Finally, Danielle and Francis agreed. It was time to investigate further. Francis and her husband arrived at the home first. After she parked, she tried to get inside. We got to the house and I rang the doorbell and went to the front. It was locked, so I went around the back. Nothing. Everything was locked up. And I called Danielle. Before Danielle could even get there, Francis said to run an errand and her husband needed to get home. So she dropped her spouse off while Danielle made the 30 or so minute drive to her father and brother's house with her own children in the back seat. About a minute after Danielle arrived, Frances also made it back to the house. When Danielle parked her car, she looked at the home she'd grown up in. There was a light on, and it was coming from her childhood bedroom. I got out of the car, left my car running, um because the kids were in the car. And I started to uh, go up to the house, um, ring the doorbell, knock on the door, and to see if I can get anybody's attention. While her grandmother watched her kids, Danielle tried the same strategies that Francis had earlier. But she got creative about trying to get Brandon and Lewis to answer the door. When we got to the door, what did you do to try to get in? I just rang the doorbell initially and knocked on the door and then used the door knocker at the top, I believe. Was there any response when you did that? No. Did you hear anything from inside the house when you were doing that? No. The doorbell, uh, when you were ringing the doorbell, some doorbells are loud, some are soft. From standing outside, could you hear whether the doorbell was going off inside when you were pressing the button? I can't recall. Okay. And... And you couldn't get in the front door. Where did you go? I went around back, um, up the, the stairs to, like, the porch area. Danielle worked her way around back and climbed the stairs to the closed-in three-season room. But the door was locked, and as before, there was no response to her repeated knocks. From there, did you try to look in or get a response anywhere else in the house besides the front and the back? Um, besides from the back, yes, I just went around the house where um, the bedroom light was on and started throwing acorns at the window. Uh, and when you say the bedroom... At this stage, it was clear that everyone's efforts were futile. And finally, Danielle called her father, Mark, who told her about the key hidden under a welcome mat. She used it to unlock the door and went inside then climbed the stairs, creeping toward her old bedroom. When she reached it, the first thing she laid eyes on was her brother. 
I saw Brandon laying in like a fetal position in the doorway. Um, and then I saw like a corner desk that was moved um, in the middle of the room covered with some kind of cloth for painting. And then I saw um, two legs from the knee down. Initially, Danielle couldn't tell if Brandon was conscious or even alive. Terrified, she ran out of the house. As soon as her grandmother, Frances, saw her, she could tell something was terribly wrong. She came out horrified. And she ran by me, and I said to her, what's the matter? What's going on? And she just, you know, shook her. She was shaken. Danielle regained her composure and eventually dialed 911, while Frances went inside the house to see what was going on for herself. Walked down that hall, yelling again, Garcia, Brandon, where are you? Is everything okay? And I got to the end, and Brandon was right at the door in a fetal position going back and forth, going back and forth. And I said, Brandon, you okay? I tapped him on the back. Brandon, what's up? You okay? He didn't answer. He just kept going back and forth. Did you hear? Was he, were there any noises? Nothing. No, 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 no noises. Have you ever seen him like that before? No, no, no. What happened next? So when he was in the fetal position going back and forth, I kept saying, Brandon, you okay? And I said, where's Garcia? And the minute I said that, he had, they had um, furniture in the middle of the room because Garcia, I was assuming, was painting in that room. Okay. I saw one leg up, like, you know, and I walked around Around what or who? The furniture. And he was leaning on his back. And there was blood everywhere. And I went, oh my God. So I stepped over him and I ran down the hall, ran outside. And I think I called my husband and I said, he's gone, he's gone. When police arrived at the scene, they didn't know quite what to expect. Somehow, 911 dispatch hadn't relayed the full details of the call, so they thought they were simply responding for a welfare check to see if the people inside the house were okay. Instead, they found Brandon lying on the ground, just as Danielle and Francis had described. Officer Matthew Morin of the Londonderry, New Hampshire Police was one of the first on scene. Uh, I saw uh, a person inside the room, like, I guess, kind of faced out in like a fetal type position. Can you describe that person for us? Yeah, it was a male. He was face down. Um, and yeah, I noticed that he was alive. He appeared to be breathing. Brandon Castiglione lay face down on the floor, tightly tucked into the fetal position. He slowly rocked back and forth, mumbling incoherently under his breath, almost as if he were praying. Directly behind him, 
Pastor Luis Garcia was laying on the floor too. Yeah, I observed a male who was lying on the ground on his back face up. Um, there appeared to be a large amount of blood coming from him. And I saw a mark on his face that uh, initially I believed was uh, a gunshot entrance wound. Where on the face? It was in the area of like his nose and like eye, I believe. Officer Morin and his partners knew that Lewis wasn't just deceased. He'd been murdered. And the inconsolable man folded on the floor in front of them had either been the first on scene to discover Luis Garcia's body, or worse, that he was the one who killed him. This episode is proudly sponsored by Rocket Money. So, yeah, my debit card expired this month, and as I do about every two years, I just sit down one night for several hours and literally go through dozens of accounts to update my payment information. Only this year was so much easier thanks to Rocket Money because all of my recurring expenses were organized and cataloged on one tab. If you didn't know, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. I even found another sneaky monthly subscription when I was updating my payment information this month, and that was a $12.65 per month automatic ink cartridge replacement service that I didn't even know I signed up for in the first place. So if you struggle to save money every month with Rocket Money, you can quickly identify all of those sneaky subscriptions that keep charging you month after month. You can actually cancel the ones you don't want with the press of a button. So there's no more long hold times or annoying emails with customer service. That's why I love Rocket Money, that simple ability to cancel with one click. So stop wasting your money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible. Rocketmoney.com slash invisible. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Squarespace. Look, I think most of you know by now I have been a loyal Squarespace customer for years. In fact, before the podcast was ever a thing. But what is Squarespace? Well, it is, I think, by far the best all-in-one web design and entrepreneurial web platform that I've ever used. And trust me, I've used a lot of them. I use it to build websites and businesses online. In fact, we've used Squarespace for the past several years to build our beautiful home at InvisibleQuire.com. I love Squarespace and I'll continue to use them for years because they have such an amazingly easy to use interface and several integrated product features that make building your business super simple and fun. In fact, I've been using Squarespace to work on a brand new secret project for the past several weeks and I'm actually using their Fluid Engine to build it. Fluid Engine is Squarespace's next generation website design system. It guides you through a very straightforward process and helps you select a flexible professional website template then helps by recommending website sections and functions that may be of use to your business. And the best part, and probably the thing I love most, is that it has literal drag-and-drop functionality for both desktop and mobile responsivity. They also have an easily integrated online store function, which we've been using behind the scenes to build out our soon-to-be-announced merch store at InvisibleQuire.com. And whether you're selling physical or digital products, the entire process is easy and customizable. So if you're building a website for your brand or business, head on over to squarespace.com slash choir to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash choir. And when you're ready to purchase a website or domain, use code choir for 10% off squarespace.com slash choir. 
After police found Luis Garcia dead and Brandon Castiglione in the room with him, their investigation didn't take long. All the evidence was there and readily available. A shell casing was on the floor between Brandon and Lewis, and the officers also found a gun, the likely murder weapon, in the hallway right outside. Later they learned the firearm was typically kept locked in a case, and Brandon was the only person who possessed a key to it. Officer Morin later testified that he only investigated for roughly two to five minutes before arresting Brandon on site for Lewis's homicide. But his partner Andrew Phillips claimed that was more than enough time to solve the case. The moments that you go into the bedroom mm-hmm. to when Brandon is um, taken out of the room. It was a very quick occurrence. Is that correct? I would, quick, I wouldn't say quick. It wasn't hasty. We took our time. We were methodical about it. It wasn't rushed, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So when the decision was made to detain Brandon, um, you put the handcuffs on him? I did, yes. Officer Morin helped him stand up? Yes, I believe so. Okay. And while that was going on, um, he was crying? He was mumbling. Um, I don't know what he was saying. Crying, I don't recall. Okay. But while the case may have seemed straightforward to the authorities, Lewis and Brandon's loved ones were floored. Danielle later spoke about seeing Brandon let out of the house in handcuffs. Before he could climb into the squad car, he looked at his sister and said something to the effect of, Just pray. It was hard to reconcile the deeply religious young man with this brutal murder or to understand how Brandon could have killed the minister, who he'd previously considered a friend and spiritual guide. It was all just so random. Brandon and Lewis always got along in the past. In fact, it seems Lewis only got involved in Brandon's life because he wanted to help the young man, who had a troubled past. In his teenage years, Brandon struggled. When he was 17 years old, he was arrested for assault and criminal mischief. The following year, he had three more brushes with the criminal justice system, twice for charges relating to controlled substances and once for assault. Police even believed he was operating what's been called a, quote, drug lab out of his home, according to the Eagle Tribune though at the time it was reported that police were simply searching for stolen goods taken from a local flea market. During the search, police apparently found a highly unstable material used to make hash oil, a highly concentrated form of cannabis used for various vapes and edibles. In 2015, when he was just 20 years old, Brandon was apprehended while driving under the influence. Then in 2017, he was handcuffed twice more. It was a lot of legal trouble to get into at such a young age, and it certainly seemed like Brandon was on the path to nowhere good. But there were people in the local churches who wanted to help Brandon. Namely, Luis Garcia, or Garcia as most knew him, the minister of the local church called the New England Pentecostal Ministries. When the Castiglione family, including Brandon and his father Mark, attended Bible studies at the church, they connected with Luis. And in turn, Lewis took compassion on Brandon. As another local faith leader, Bishop Stanley Choate, put it, Lewis was trying to help Brandon. Brandon was having some problems mentally, and Lewis was there to help him out. 
Through our research, we're not quite sure what those mental problems Bishop Choate alluded to actually were. If Brandon was ever diagnosed with anything, that information has never been released to the public. Whatever he was dealing with, Luis Garcia became a prominent figure in his life, and he and the Castiglionis took turns hosting Bible studies in their homes. Brandon began to attend prayer nights and other religious meetups every single week, and his father Mark later spoke about how committed Brandon had become to his faith. So uh, I think Mondays was typical. Uh, 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 we had prayer on Tuesday. I believe we had the Tuesday Bible study in the evenings too, and Wednesday another prayer. This is Max. We're talking about Thursday. We we did uh, over, you know, at, before the event over the Garcias on Thursdays generally, and then uh, the next one typically would be Sunday, typically. But that doesn't mean that we didn't have other events mixed in here and there. Brandon often visited other local churches too, and he dreamed of one day becoming a minister himself. It was a surprising shift. Brandon had never been particularly religious before, but now he was all in on Christianity. Later on, mental health experts would point to this evolution as a major red flag. Now, there's nothing wrong with having or expressing one's faith or being involved with a religious institution. In fact, churches, synagogues, and other places of worship can give people a strong sense of belonging and community. But there's a phenomenon known as hyper-religiosity in which a person experiencing a mental health crisis becomes fixated on religious notions. In some extreme cases, the person might believe themselves to be God or a prophet, or they may think they have to fulfill some type of divine calling, like Brandon's belief that God wanted him to be a pastor. Hyper-religiosity can make a person feel like they're certain about topics that are mysterious to other people, like they think they know for sure that God exists, with no doubts in their minds whatsoever, or they're convinced that they completely understand complex biblical passages that have baffled scholars for centuries. This heightened state may give someone a sense of conviction when, ordinarily, they'd be plagued with questions. Brandon's religious devotion ran deep. According to his sister, Danielle Patalano, he often curled into the fetal position for lengthy periods. He could pray that way for hours, sometimes more than three at a time. And he and Lewis were also known to get drawn into deep, intense arguments about theological matters. But as passionate as Brandon became during these conversations, he would never grow visibly upset or angry and he certainly never threatened Lewis. As Father Mark later explained, and, and just to clarify, when you say disagreements, you're talking about what passages in a Bible means. Am I understanding that right? Yes. Okay, so when we're talking about disagreements, people aren't, you know, fighting. They're disagreeing about what passages well, mean. Yeah, exactly. And um, it wasn't just Brandon and Garcia, right? Oh, no, everyone got involved usually uh, with their own you know, take on what it meant to them. Brandon's grandmother, Frances Pastano, also echoed those same sentiments. Um, these Bible study meetings, um, people got along? Yes. Um, there were sometimes discussions and disagreements. Heated discussions, yeah, right. Okay. 
But everyone got along. Yes. Everyone loved each other. Yes. Um, everyone treated it respectfully. Yes. They just had some disagreements over right, right. exactly what different right. verses or, right. or sections right. meant. Even when their debates were particularly fierce or animated, they couldn't shake the men's core friendship because Brandon really needed a friend. As part of his effort to turn his life around, he set boundaries with his former acquaintances. His father Mark later described it as an effort to, quote, keep away from bad elements. So Lewis filled a social void for Brandon. When they weren't participating in church-sanctioned activities, they occasionally went to a shooting range together, where Brandon would take his Glock 19 9mm handgun to practice target shooting. They actually went on one of these shooting range excursions sometime in September of 2019. As per usual, Brandon brought his Glock with him so he could get comfortable pulling the trigger. A few weeks later, that very same gun would take Luis Garcia's life. On October 1st, 2019, when the police arrived on scene, they found Brandon lying on the floor of the bedroom. Luis Garcia was dead beside him, shot by Brandon's gun. A gun with two and only two fingerprints on it, both of which belonged to Brandon. And that single shell casing that lay on the floor nearby, perhaps unsurprisingly, matched the box of ammunition kept in the top drawer of Brandon's nightstand. Fiacci brand 92-grain all-copper 9mm shells. Also, there was no indication Brandon ever tried to help Lewis. No blood on his clothes, even though he'd been alone in the room with him, or who knows how long. Officials were quick to arrest Brandon Castiglione for the crime, and the mystery seemed open and shut to them. But as clear as the evidence seemed at first, there were still many questions. First and foremost... Brandon had no motive to hurt Lewis, let alone kill him. There was no hard evidence that Brandon actually pulled the trigger that day. He could have left those prints on the gun earlier, say, at the shooting range. While he was in the room when his sister Danielle and his grandmother Frances found him on the floor, that doesn't mean he'd been there all day. He could have easily left his home to run errands, only to return later to find his friend shot. If so, the shock might have made him collapse to the ground into the fetal position to pray. But police never collected a vital piece of evidence from that crime scene. Brandon's cell phone, which was located on the bed directly in front of him. A phone which most certainly would have contained a GPS log of his movements from earlier in the day if he were, in fact, not present at the time of Lewis's murder. That phone may also have shown what time he arrived back at the house to find Luis Garcia's body, triggering his near-catatonic-like prayer state. After all, as we've already mentioned, Brandon had a history of praying this way on the ground, with his knees tightly tucked to his chest in the exact position Danielle discovered him in. According to Brandon's lawyer, when he was in this state, he would get so focused he couldn't always hear other people. He may not have noticed when Danielle and Francis knocked at the door, rang the doorbell, or threw acorns at the window. It's possible he was still deep in that state, which he called deep prayer, when they each came into the room. This explanation fits a statement later given by Police Sergeant Justin Hallock, who arrived at the scene after Brandon had already been arrested. 
Sergeant Hallock explained. Um, he was crying. There was a mucus coming from his nose and mouth area. Um, and he was kind of just in a downward position. Apparently, it seemed as though he was praying. Where was he when you met him? He was in, uh, I believe, Officer Morin's cruiser. Sergeant Hallock accompanied Brandon back to the jail, where he was placed in the juvenile soft room, a space specifically designed for younger offenders and victims to speak with detectives and social workers, complete with a desk and even a couch. There he would continue to show signs of distress or of that state of deep prayer. Hallock watched Brandon through a live video feed and also checked in on him in person periodically. He continued to move from the couch to the floor and again in like a prayer position. Um, He continued to mumble um, what I made out to be a prayer. Did he ever say anything that you heard that you wouldn't consider or have thought of as a prayer? No. Now, this could have been the behavior of a guilty man begging God for forgiveness, but it just as easily could have been a man in shock after finding one of his dearest friends dead. This episode is proudly brought to you by Warby Parker. All right, everybody, the verdict is in. I've been wearing my new Warby Parker glasses for just over two months now, and I absolutely love them. I got the jet black matte Percy glasses with anti-fatigue and light responsive lenses, and literally, these things are a game changer. They are the first pair of glasses I've ever owned that I put on and, after a while, forgot I was actually wearing because they're so comfortable and natural. These things are awesome. The anti-fatigue lenses are recommended by Warby Parker doctors for people with tired or strained eyes after a long day of using digital devices. And yeah, if you've seen my recording studio, there's monitors everywhere and my eyes literally hurt after a long day of recording and editing. Warby Parker offers everything you need for happier eyes, eyeglasses, sunglasses, contact lenses, and eye exams. You can shop with them online or in stores. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. And you can even add a pair and save. Get 15% off when you purchase two or more pairs of prescription eyeglasses or sunglasses. So if you're due for a new pair and want to do what I did, try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. So try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash choir. That's warbyparker.com slash choir. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's difficult to understand how Brandon could have been so visibly upset by mid-afternoon if he'd actually pulled the trigger earlier that morning. Remember, there was an approximately five-hour gap between 9.31 a.m. 
the first time Luis Garcia missed a phone call, and when his body was discovered. And it's likely he was killed even earlier than 9.31, as detectives didn't find any paint on his clothes or skin, meaning he hadn't even begun his work that day before he was shot. It was a question jurors would inevitably have to grapple with. Could Brandon really be practically catatonic and deep in prayer for five hours or more after committing murder? For now, his hearing was still a long way off, and while Brandon waited to face justice, life somehow went on for both families after this horrific tragedy. Brandon's father, Mark Castiglione, was supposed to be married at the New England Pentecostal Ministries Church on October 12, 2019. But in the wake of the tragedy, the event became a combination wedding and funeral. Lewis's celebration of life ceremony was supposed to take place at noon, immediately after Mark married Claire McCullen at 10 a.m. But the day's events did not go according to plan. Roughly 10 minutes into the wedding ceremony and just after the bride and groom said their vows, but before presiding Bishop Stanley Choate could declare them to be married, an armed gunman strode in. It was Dale Holloway. Othniel Archer was working in the church's balcony that day, running the sound and PA system. According to his daughter, Othniel saw the new arrival and immediately noticed the way his sweatshirt hood covered his face. It struck him as odd and suspicious, so he kept a close eye on the newcomer. As Othniel watched, Dale took aim at the altar and suddenly fired. The first bullet struck Bishop Chode in the chest. Some horrified wedding guests watched, too astonished to move. Others sprinted for the exits, and that was Othniel's first thought as well, that he needed to get to safety. But then his sense of responsibility gave him a moment of pause. Dale shot again. The second bullet hit the bride, Claire, in the arm. Before Dale could get off another round, Othniel dove from the balcony, tackling the gunman right where he stood. Several other attendees followed Othniel's lead, trying desperately to wrestle the weapon out of Dale's hand. At some point during the struggle, Mark Castiglione was hit in the head with the gun, but he kept his wits about him long enough to pry the firearm from Dale's fingers. Afterward, the crowd managed to restrain the gunman. Luckily, the local Pelham police had given the congregation active shooter training earlier that year, a training which likely played a pivotal role in the wedding guest's quick and decisive response. Minutes after they called 911, police arrived on scene and arrested Dale. It goes without saying that Luis Garcia's memorial was canceled immediately following the violence. They also called off their Sunday services for the week, and when they eventually resumed, they had police on site for security. Mark, Claire, and Bishop Choate were all hospitalized from their injuries, the bride and clergyman for their gunshot wounds and the groom for being pistol-whipped. While Mark and Claire were released from treatment quickly, the bishop remained in critical condition throughout the weekend. His horrified niece posted the following to Facebook. 
A coward walked into my family's church today at NEP New England Pentecostal Church and shot my uncle, Bishop Stanley Choate. I call for anyone that knows and believes in the God we serve to get on your knees and pray for my family. Call it the power of prayer or the wonders of modern medicine. All three of the injured victims, including Bishop Choate, made a full recovery. This must have been a relief to Mark, Claire, Bishop Choate, and all of their families. But all the survivors were left with uneasy questions. How did this happen? And why had Dale opened fire during their wedding? How can anyone make sense of that violence? During a press conference, the bishop's son, John Choate, alluded to how arbitrary it all felt. We want to stress that NEP Ministries does not know the man accused of shooting my father nor was the shooter a member of the ministry. What I can tell you is the bishop constantly preaches love and forgiveness, demonstrates kindness by helping anyone he could, always trying to do the right thing, and his family and congregation alike respect and honor him. The bishop touched many lives in his community with his kindness and ability to make most people feel a sense of belonging. He is truly a man of peace and integrity. Bishop Choate didn't sound like the sort of person to make enemies. In fact, the whole situation was baffling. Questions were swirling about, but it didn't take police long to make the connection between the wedding shooting and the murder of Luis Garcia, because the shooter, Dale Holloway, was none other than Luis Garcia's stepson. Police Chief Joseph Rourke addressed this connection briefly during a later press conference. This does not seem to be a random event at this point. At least that's what preliminary investigation is telling us. When investigators questioned Dale Holloway's mother, she alluded to Dale's past mental health struggles, suggesting he experienced paranoia following Lewis's murder. She also offered a specific theory about his potential motive. The detective's notes summarized her speculation as follows. People who were celebrating Mark's wedding moments before were then also going to participate in Lewis's funeral. Dale was very upset and thought it was inappropriate for people to be celebrating one moment and then mourning the next. This theory fit with comments Dale made to police who were investigating Lewis's murder. His paranoia was allegedly readily apparent, as he said, quote, I didn't want to hurt anybody, but my mother's in danger. I figured it out who killed my father. I don't know, but they keep coming to my house. I'm scared. My mother's... uh, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. During that same statement, Dale also expressed concerns about people from the church. People who called themselves friends, but weren't really friends, according to him. He also asked for help. Now, the preceding quotes came from a legal request Dale filed on his own behalf after the shooting. He handwrote a description of the comments he made to police following Lewis's murder, though it's unclear if he made these statements before or after the church shooting. It is clear that his stepfather's homicide weighed heavily on him after he fired on the wedding party, though. When his transport vehicle pulled away from the courthouse after his arraignment, he pressed his face against the open, barred window and shouted at nearby reporters, My father was murdered! However, police publicly said they were open to exploring other theories besides the seemingly obvious explanation that Dale opened fire for revenge. 
In an interview with ABC News, the Senior Assistant Attorney General for New Hampshire, Benjamin Agati, explained, We're certainly looking into whether that was the motive for this event, but there are a lot of different things in play with regards to the individuals who attended this church and with regard to the people at the wedding. We are looking into Luis Garcia's death as a possible connection, but we don't have specific evidence to say that clearly is the motivation at this time. After all, it was clear Dale had a troubled past, and any number of old grievances could have certainly led to the attempted killing. Dale Holloway grew up in an abusive household. His father had a substance use disorder and beat Dale when he was just six years old. The assault was allegedly so bad that the father lost all of his custodial rights. But Dale's life didn't get better after that. His teenage years were marked with ongoing legal issues and alleged gang activity. When he was 15, he was involved in a robbery that escalated to violence. After being stabbed 15 times, the teenager became disabled. Then in 2001, when Dale was just 18 or 19 years old, he gruesomely stabbed another man in Boston. He claimed he believed the man was a member of a gang and that he was armed. The man did not have any weapons on him, but Dale may have truly believed he was in danger. He'd had symptoms of PTSD since he survived the earlier stabbing. At times, he also alluded to hearing voices. Regardless of his mental state, this assault landed him in prison for two years. In 2012, he was repeatedly convicted on domestic assault charges. He allegedly sexually assaulted one of his girlfriends and got her pregnant. After the two broke up, he held her and their kids hostage in their home for some three consecutive days, all of that before Luis Garcia's murder. And believe it or not, the shooting at the New England Pentecostal Ministries wasn't his last brush with violence. He pleaded not guilty to the charges related to that attack, and just one week later, he was meeting with his attorney, Michael Davidow, at the jail where he was incarcerated. What happened during that conference has been disputed. Unfortunately, there were no third-party witnesses present because Michael and Dale were alone in the room together. The nearest guard was sitting outside, his desk turned in the opposite direction. In one statement, Dale claimed that Michael suddenly developed a severe nosebleed. The incarcerated young man tapped on the window to their room until a guard came over to check on them and provided assistance to the lawyer. But that story doesn't match with what his attorney claimed, or the physical evidence. According to Michael, during their legal consultation, he reached forward to shake Dale's handcuffed hand, and Dale suddenly flew into a completely unprovoked rage. He beat Michael so badly, he broke his nose and caused a hemorrhage in his brain. Michael needed to be treated in an intensive care unit, and as he later testified, There's a phrase that your life flashes before your eyes. I always thought that was just a phrase, but I now understand what that means and why people say it. Because while he was attacking me, I thought that my son was going to grow up without his father. I thought that my wife was going to be alone. And those were my final thoughts, Your Honor, as I thought I was going to die. Luckily, once again, Dale's potentially fatal attack failed to take a life. Michael recovered, and while Dale initially maintained his innocence, he eventually pleaded guilty to first-degree assault. During his sentencing hearing, his legal counsel emphasized that he was, in fact, sorry for the attack. 
Dale is not here asking to be released with time served. He's not asking for a house of correction sentence. He recognizes the circumstances warrant a stand committed prison sentence. But we are asking for a lesser sentence than the state is asking for. And he pointed to the fact that Dale did, in fact, tap on a window to get the guard's attention after the assault was over. He didn't really want Michael to die. Michael, on the other hand, argued otherwise. He truly believed Dale had been trying to kill him that day and expressed that he nearly succeeded. Then Dale spoke on his own behalf at that same hearing. I just want to say I apologize. I want to apologize to the victim. I want to apologize to everybody involved. They may not know me. They might not know my true story. My true story can't be told. Because I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to tell it. I might die in prison. I made it home so many times that I hugged my mother. My stepfather was there to watch me hug my mother coming home from times that were hard. He was there to answer the phone calls that I made. He was there for several court times, several trials and tribulations that I've had as a kid. If anybody knows my story, it's going to be my mother, my stepfather. Now that my stepfather's not here, mother's the only one who can testify to that. Whether this was a sincere expression of regret or an attempt to manipulate the court into feeling sympathy, we may never know. As of this recording, Dale Holloway is serving a seven and a half to 15 year sentence for attacking his attorney. He is yet to stand trial for the shooting at the New England Pentecostal Ministries, but according to press releases, he plans to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. As for the man who kicked off all of this violence, Brandon Castiglione, well, in February of 2022, he underwent repeated psychological evaluations to determine if he was mentally competent to stand trial. Given his history of possible hyper-religiosity, his attorney questioned whether he was in a state of mind to take responsibility for the alleged shooting. A forensic examiner talked about the paranoia Brandon experienced before the murder. She read statements from his family about how his personality and demeanor had changed and how he'd been praying a lot. However, when she met with him in person, he seemed cogent and attentive. He didn't answer when she asked questions about whether he heard voices, including God's voice. But later on, during a phone call with a friend, he laughed off his unresponsiveness. The examiner later testified... He shared with his friend that he simply did not want to continue with the meeting because he was concerned that what he said would be shared with the judge and prosecutor. She concluded that she believed Brandon was well enough and mentally competent to stand trial. On the strength of those findings, Brandon faced a jury of his peers in May of 2023. The trial didn't bring many big surprises. The prosecution called numerous witnesses, including law enforcement personnel, Lewis's widow, Patricia Garcia, and Brandon's father and sister. Brandon also had the opportunity to testify on his own behalf, but declined. All the while, his attorneys insisted that there was no hard evidence linking him to Lewis Garcia's murder. 
They also argued that police didn't do a thorough enough investigation, explaining that they instead jumped to conclusions and arrested him without sufficient evidence of his guilt. Brandon Castiglione is not guilty. The police jumped to conclusions. Within two minutes of the first officer arriving on the scene, Brandon was in handcuffs in the back of a police car. Because the police jumped to that conclusion, they did not do a thorough investigation. And as you've heard, they only looked for evidence that pointed at Brandon. What the government doesn't want you to think about is four very important words in this case. Beyond a reasonable doubt. You've heard that several times throughout the case. The government has to prove their case. Brandon doesn't have to prove anything sitting there. The government has to prove that Brandon did what they're claiming he did. They have to prove that to you beyond a reasonable doubt. Brandon's defense team said there was plenty of room for doubt, though they didn't offer any alternate explanations about who else may have killed Lewis, other than briefly theorizing that Lewis might have let someone else into the home earlier in the morning while Brandon was away running errands somewhere. One possible explanation, they explained, that police had never properly investigated because they never interviewed neighbors or sought anyone's home security footage. In an effort to either prove or disprove whether or not Brandon was in fact present during the murder, and if someone else may have come into the home. Also, they didn't explain where Brandon may have gone that day, if he was supposedly absent at the time of the shooting. Nor did they make any claims about how the murder may have played out at all. Their arguments weren't about what might have happened. They were just about how many unknowns remained in the case. After all, no one could prove Brandon pulled the trigger that day, or that he was in the house at the time Lewis was shot, at least not according to the brief investigation conducted by police. See, immediately after taking Brandon Castiglione into custody, officers retrieved three gunshot residue kits, one which they used to collect a sample from Luis Garcia's own hands to rule out the possibility of suicide. That kit was sent off to the state's crime lab and ultimately demonstrated as much. Lewis hadn't killed himself, he had been murdered. But there were also two more GSR kits, which were used to collect samples from Brandon's hands, along with the clothing he was wearing at the time police detained him in the family home. The results? Well, there were none, because those kits were never sent off to the state crime lab for processing. None of it made any sense, not the alleged missteps by police, nor the supposed timeline. Oh yeah, and no one could explain how he allegedly spent five or more hours after the murder in the fetal position in deep prayer. And they reminded the jurors that nobody had presented any kind of motive for the murder whatsoever. The prosecution countered that they didn't have to prove a motive. They simply needed to demonstrate that the crime scene itself and Brandon's presence at it were enough to demonstrate his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That argument must have been persuasive enough as the jurors came to a unanimous verdict on both charges. Madam Foreperson, how say you? Is the defendant guilty or not guilty of the charge? 
of second degree murder, charge ID number 1809C, alleging that the defendant committed the crime of second degree murder in that he knowingly caused the death of Luis Garcia by shooting Mr. Garcia through the neck with a firearm, resulting in his death. We find the defendant guilty. Madam Foreperson, how say you? Is the defendant guilty or not guilty of the charge of second degree murder, charge ID number 167D, crime of second degree murder, in that he recklessly caused the death of Luis Garcia under circumstances manifesting an extreme indifference to the value of human life by shooting Mr. Garcia in the neck with a firearm, resulting in his death. We find the defendant guilty. Brandon Castiglione was ultimately sentenced to 42 years in prison. While that number may sound a bit arbitrary, the judge explained his reasoning when he handed down his final ruling. After 42 years, Brandon would be 64 years old. If Luis Garcia hadn't been killed on October 1st, 2019, he would have also been 64 years old that day. In a poetic twist, Brandon would have the opportunity to, quote, pick up where Lewis left off. We can only hope that one day when Brandon does go free, he'll do so with the resolve to continue the good work Lewis did in his own life. But who can ultimately say? We can only speculate on what Brandon was thinking or how he was feeling when he pulled that trigger. But it's just that, speculation. To this day, it's unclear why he killed Lewis Garcia, and the reasoning may stay forever secret so long as Brandon Castiglione refuses to talk. Brandon Castiglione's actions rippled outward with unintended consequences in this case. The shooting at New England Pentecostal Ministries feels equally senseless, even though in this case we can point to revenge as one possible motive for Dale Holloway. If there's one thing Brandon and Dale have in common, besides their connections to brutal crimes, it's a history of mental health struggles and troubled pasts. Most people with serious mental health conditions don't go on to commit violent crimes, and it wouldn't be fair to blame Brandon and Dale's convictions solely on their emotional or mental struggles. But we can infer that a variety of factors contributed to their bloody outbursts including drug use, paranoia, grief, trauma, childhood violence, and a lack of a solid support network. In Brandon's case, the evidence suggested he felt a certainty about his beliefs that went far beyond simple faith. And thanks to his hyper-religiosity, he may have thought he understood things that are, by their very nature, impossible to understand. But as Luis Garcia's murder shows... There are many things we'll never be able to fully explain or make sense of. And when tragedy strikes, sometimes all we can do is throw our hands in the air and fruitlessly ask, Why? <laughs> 